so excited to have our good friend, covenant member, uh, someone who has helped form our church community in a, in, for many, many years and is a personal mentor of mine and many other folks on our team, uh, Leland Eliason. Pastor Leland, come on up. We are, we're so grateful to be able to hear from you today. Uh, Leland is Provost Emeritus of Bethel Seminary, where I know I trained to be a pastor, and we're so grateful for your investment there. And thank you for your investment in our community. And this guy, I think, has ideas about retiring, but we're going to have him keep preaching. So sorry about that. No retiring here. Oh, I love that. All right, he loves it. Can we give That's Leland great. a round of applause thank as he you. jumps into the Proverbs today? <laughs> thank you. Well, a gospel song went through my mind when I sat in that worship time this morning. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Thank you, worship team. Oh. So wisdom literature reminds me of a treasure. We have all kind of treasure hunting going on in our world today, whether it's in the bottom of the ocean looking for sunken ships from a variety of places, or we have treasure hunting going on in Colorado mountains. One of those treasures was found. I don't think the person who found it has admitted where it is, so there's going to be another treasure hunt for that treasure. But imagine for a moment that you have in front of you a box with treasures in it. It may be antique watches or tools. It may be first edition copies of a famous book. It might be designer jewelry that uh, you treasure. Uh, ever so many different kinds of things that people like and want qualify as treasures. And there are many kinds of them. And there are many kinds of wisdom literature. Not just one book. Maybe the first book you think of when we talk about wisdom literature is the book of Proverbs. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But there are actually three books in the Old Testament which in their entirety is given to a single subject. Job is why do good people suffer. Ecclesiastes this world can be meaningless. And the Song of Solomon, the dignity and beauty of the gift of sexuality. Now, the book of Proverbs, in contrast, has hundreds of admonitions for specific circumstances and situations. It's a collection of collections, actually. Solomon is credited with writing most of these. But there's also a collection at the end for, uh, for a person named Augur, who had a collection of wisdom uh, sayings, and, and King Lemuel. So it's a complex book, and uh, we'll be trying to help you a little bit with that in, in just a few moments. But just think about those topics of the wisdom literature of the five books. Just list them on the screen, if you would. I don't know where the screen is. There it is. So, ooh, excuse me. I've got a knee that's complaining every once in a while. The problem of suffering, the desert of meaninglessness, the dignity of joy-filled sexuality, the great variety of proverbs, each of which precisely fits a specific situation, 
and the testimonials to the rewards of a life that reveres, respects, and fears God from the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is sometimes listed as a fifth book in the Old Testament uh, as, as the uh, collection of books that are about wisdom literature. Now, before we get to uh, a specific proverb, uh, here are some guidelines for gaining wisdom from the wisdom literature. Number one, expect to gain a deeper personal knowledge of God when you practice God's wisdom. That, that may be the most important single thing about, about wisdom literature. Because as we trust God to do what the wisdom of God asks us to do, He is with us. And we get to know Him better. When I was in grade school, I memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Well, when I was 18, I had an occasion to put that into practice. I had to make a choice. I knew I was called to be a pastor. And the choice was to go to a three-year Bible school near us or to travel a thousand miles and take four years of college and three years of seminary to get prepared. It was a big decision because the cost differential was huge. And uh, the crops on the farm hadn't been that great, so I knew how tight the money was. But one July day, I told my folks, I really feel that God wants me to go to Bethel. To which my father, with a sixth grade education, said, well, you better send in the application then, because you can't get into the school if you don't apply. And when the time comes, we'll know whether you can go or not. And mom and dad and I prayed earnestly for God's leadership. And uh, when August came, dad says, well, I think with the job you've been promised and what we can provide, you can make it. That was a life-changing decision. Uh, the preparation I received was so necessary because uh, I wasn't ready to go into a pastorate in three years. I needed all seven years and barely had enough wisdom to be a pastor at that time. I met my wife at college. Now that was worth the whole thing right there. And I discovered that I got to know God better that when we trust him to direct us and we have a sense of this is his direction, then he promises to provide for us, to be the guide for us in those circumstances, to be present and enable us to face all the difficulties and troubles that come along. And that memory of God's presence in my life, I have a, a, a video in my mind of of standing on a gravel highway, ready to get onto a Greyhound bus. And I looked at my parents. I'm not sure why so much emotion is surfacing today. But I, uh, I felt both frightened and excited. Because I knew this was a pilgrimage that I wasn't alone in. And, and God was with me. So, 
as you, as you find a nugget of wisdom from God's word for your life and you put it into practice, know that God will honor whatever risk you take to obey him. Secondly, wholeheartedly seek for wisdom. Listen to what Proverbs 2.4 says. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now, reading Job or Ecclesiastes until the, the message makes sense to you and becomes clear takes some time and focused concentration. I think we have a temptation to take the book of Proverbs for our devotions and say it's kind of the God's fast food method to feed us every day. Because you can read a proverb in about 30 seconds, and if you think about it for 30 seconds afterwards, you're lucky. Uh, and, and I'm just wanting to say right now that that's not sufficient to get the wisdom of God where it needs to go. That is into your mind and into your heart and shape your life. So, Look for it diligently and wholeheartedly. When uh, we lived in California, uh, I always get nervous when I see this man walking around that I'm doing something wrong or that I need to change something. We're okay. Okay, so when we were in Whittier, uh, I would drive uh, south of, uh, of where we lived to the beach, and, and I would run on the beach in the morning and there was sand smoothed by countless waves until there wasn't a footprint in sight. And I would often have the first footprints, except that there were treasure seekers on the beach with Geiger counters. And they were going around and they were diligently looking for lost watches or stylish sunglasses or wristwatches. And every once in a while, you'd hear a, a shout-out that they found something. And I never found a thing on the beach, because I wasn't looking for that. That's not why I was there. And, and you and I will not grow in wisdom if we don't search for it diligently. And thirdly, and this is kind of a big one, take time to understand the cultures of wisdom literature. For example, the book of Proverbs has a lot of passages that start by saying, my son. And there's enough of those, and there aren't any, my daughter, <laughs> that way, so, because scholars think it was used as a manual for training leadership in the king's court. But listen to what David Hubbard, who writes, in my opinion, the, the best commentary on the book of Proverbs. Uh, he, this is what he says. The Bible must always be interpreted cross-culturally. We do not live in a monarchy whose basic enterprise is agriculture, nor do we live in a society that stems from the common ethnic, religious, and cultural roots. Our politics, our economics, our technology, and our pluralism all separate us from the world of Israel's sages. We must make powerful adjustments to apply God's infallible word to our lives. And one of those adjustments that he then writes about is the role of women. 
which in the New Testament is clarified by all kinds of statements, like in Christ there is neither male nor female, and that the gifts of the Spirit were given to women and men, and that roles and responsibilities for women in the New Testament were unlike many that are described in the Old Testament, and that the power of Proverbs needs to be unleashed for women. Look, look at the Proverbs through the eyes of Christ in the New Testament, and you'll find the richness there flows. Well, a few months ago, when Pastor Stephanie asked me to speak on wisdom literature, I started reading through the book of Proverbs again, praying that God would uh, stop me when I found the verse that he wanted me to speak on. And I'm, I'm getting to chapter 21, and I'm thinking, well, it's got to be pretty soon now, God. And, and here's what turned up. Proverbs 21.3 says, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. I'd like to take the rest of my time with you this morning to talk about that Proverbs because it, it has turned out to be a treasure as I have worked on it for today. If we break it down, we notice that it does not say to think about what's right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. He doesn't say watching others do what's right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. It does not say being very busy doing religious things is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. It says to do. We have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, this proverb will not speak to us the way it intends to. Now, we have to understand in the Proverbs the difference between doing what is right and just and what the author sums up in a single word called sacrifice. This is not talking about sacrifices that you might make today. The word sacrifice pictures the elaborate system of worship in the Old Testament described in detail by the book of Viticus, where it asks the people of Israel to come to offer sacrifices to God because sin is destructive and forgiveness is costly and to come to the Lord in worship is really important. And so there was a gradation so that poor people would not be disadvantaged. Well-off people could bring a ram or a calf from their flocks. Poor people could bring a pigeon or a dove. And when they came and offered sacrifices, the goal was to align their lives. This is the goal of all worship to align our lives with the will and purpose of God. So on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, there were bells on the bottom of his robe that would be loud enough so that the people nearby could hear, and as long as they could hear the bells, they knew that their offering was being accepted by God. So that's sacrifice. Now, that needs to be understood in the context of God's will for our lives. Listen to what Deuteronomy 
10, 17 through 19, says about God's will for his people. This is just a beautiful passage of scripture. Listen, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. God was saying, this is who I am, and this is who I want you to be. I, I show no partiality or accept bribes, and don't you do that either. I defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow, so you defend widows and orphans. And I love foreigners and give them food and clothing. Now you give food and clothing to the foreigners among you. However, instead of obeying God's will for their lives in worship, the children of Israel were increasingly doing their own will. And so what we find is that Isaiah confronts the children of Israel with their behavior. He says in chapter 1, verse 11, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, trampling on my courts? And Proverbs 17.15 explains what trampling on God's courts means. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Isaiah continues. Listen to this rebuke. It's just really sobering. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, there are about a dozen Proverbs I could share to, to comment on those verses. I'll just do one. Proverbs 23.10 elaborates on both justice and compassionate. Do not move an ancient boundary stone, that's justice, or encroach upon the fields of the fatherless. The leftover grain was for the poor and the very poor to pick up. That's compassion. For their defender is strong. And God is saying, if you do that, I will take up their case against you. So the picture is really clear then, isn't it? And the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 25 reinforces all of this. He said a whole lot of religious folks aren't going to be in heaven, and here's why. Because I was hungry and you didn't feed me, and I was naked and you didn't clothe me, I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was sick and you didn't care for me. 
And I was in prison, but you didn't visit me there. And if we don't do those things, if we don't show that we understand the heart of Christ and pass on his compassion for other people so they can get it, Jesus says, you really don't know me. So here's what I think we can conclude from this proverb. Every time God's people do what is right and just, we break the oppressive cycles of hunger, poverty, sickness, prejudice, and evil. Every time we break the oppressive cycles of hunger, poverty, sickness, and prejudice, and evil, we shine the light of God's love on the dark places of our society. And every time we shine the light of God, God's love on the dark places of our society, we become full partners with God in His offer of redemption, hope, and salvation. Is it any wonder that the proverb says, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice? So the question is, what are the best ways for you and me to do what is right and just? Injustice in our world is so huge, it's such a black hole, that by myself as an individual, I just feel overwhelmed by it immediately because there's just too much in our world. The injustice about the pandemic and who gets treatment and, and the supply chains and all of the complexity of that, we pray for India and what they're going through because they deserve better. They deserve as human beings as much as we have received, right? It's not because we're some kind of special folks that we got this all done. We happen to be in this incredible nation. Well, while I was serving at Bethel Seminary, our director of diversity came to me one day and said, uh, would you be willing to go with me to create a scholarship for minority students who come and need to be prepared at the seminary? Carol and I talked it over and we agreed to do that. And so annually, there is a scholarship that goes to one or two students at the seminary who really need it. Now you say, well, what's that among so much? Well, not very much when you look at all the students who need scholarships. I agree with that. But I like the sentence that says, just because one person can't do everything doesn't mean that each person can't do something. And if we, if we live out that example, by having somebody join us, or we join somebody else, then we have some amazing things happen. For example, a few years ago at Sheridan School, where we had been meeting prior to here, and I hope, I expect we're going to go back there, I don't know that for sure, but we learned about children who were going home on weekends hungry because they didn't have food. And Woodridge Church in Plymouth joined with us and for some years, we paid the cost of meals for the kids to go home. And then during the summertime that they would have meals. And the name was changed. It's now called Every Meal. And a few Sundays ago, the announcement was made here that three million meals had now been served to people because it is, instead of two churches, I don't know how many hundreds of churches are involved, and synagogues as well who have said, we want to feed the hungry of this nation, 
And since that announcement, another million have been served. And so four million meals have come out of that. It started with just a few people over at Sheridan School with our church and Woodridge. So how does that happen? One, one of us couldn't do that if we tried. It takes trucks to deliver and drivers and helpers and preparers of the, of the uh, uh, meals as they are, are ready to be served. It's a huge thing. But together, those are the kinds of things that can happen. And I love the instinct of this church to love our community in the name of Jesus and to do tangible things that shows the compassion of Christ. Clare Housing is one example. It houses those with HIV and AIDS, and it's critical in order to lower their viral load to stop the spread of HIV. The little kitchen food shelf is a no-restrictions food shelf nearby in northeast Minneapolis, and our church staffs the food shelf with volunteers every Tuesday night, and we give financially to support it. Those are, those are really tangible things, aren't they? And, and, and they're right in line with the teaching of the proverb that we've been thinking about and the teaching of Christ. Now, a great way to join others then, if you don't have others to join with, is to join Mill City Church. Did you see that one coming? Uh, a little commercial, but I mean... Carol and I love being a part of this mission, which is so much bigger than any one of us. And there's another initiative going on. Twenty-five people have, have gathered together to say, we think there is a new initiative that our church can do and should do. And Pastor Stephanie, our lead pastor, is going to come and tell you about that right now.